0: All right. Well, welcome to Slot Plus. This is my first time ever hosting it. I'm thrilled to be in the uh, the uh, swivel, the um, Aaron swivel chair that Julia Turner has vacated. <laughs> I feel a certain imperious throb in my veins. Um, do to you your I'm gonna heels take... up on the desk? <laughs> I do. Dana, peel me a grape. Um, all <laughs> right. So today, today on Slot Plus, we're going to talk about blind spots and cultural blind spots. And the inspiration is, of course, you know, d- d- uh, uh, derives directly from your endorsement of uh, Kurastami and the idea of the cultural blind spot. And the theory here is that that um, you know, even obsessively overcultured people like Dana Stevens uh, and Stephen Metcalf carry around with them certain blind spots, and they know well enough to know that they ought to have read Thomas Mann uh, and they ought to have you know mastered the fundamental ideas of Wittgenstein, and they and they ought to be uh, Uh, versed in Iranian cinema, but they haven't done it yet. And the question is, where did these blind spots come from? Um, How do they persist for decades? Um, But also the sense that, and I think quite comforting sense, that, that, you know, you're going to sit in the Adirondack chair and read Buddenbrooks or, you know, Death in Venice. Um, You know, you're going to browse through, uh, you know, philosophical investigations, and you're going to go see um kiristami movies uh dana i want to know what you think of the uh, blind spot as a phenomenon whether it um has a plays any role in your life and um if so what is your commanding cultural blind spot
1: Oh my God! I, there's so many. I just it seems like our everyone's cultural knowledge is essentially a patchwork of blind spots with a few little shards of actual knowledge holding it together, right? I mean, especially <laughs> as the internet makes everything more and more knowable, yeah. so that you know all the things that you don't know anything about. Um, I mean, the first one that came to mind when you when you proposed this topic, which I love, I guess for me would be James Joyce. I, I really, except for Works for the Artist and the stories in Dubliners, I have never read an entire book by James Joyce, and this is in large part because I hold the books in too great esteem. It's sort of why it took me so long to finish Moby Dick is that I always wanted to be doing it in the right place with the right teacher. Somehow I felt like I can't tackle it under my circ- current circumstances. And I've talked before on the show about how I finally kind of slowly tackled and loved tackling Moby Dick. But Ulysses mm-hmm. remains out there. I mean, I'm not even talking Finnegan's Wake, but just James Joyce's mm-hmm. music. That that's going to be one of my, I hope, Adirondack chair future books. And by the way, Steve, I love your confidence that you're going to have an Adirondack chair and a moment in which to read those books. That's what I feel like we're all scrabbling
0: for. I know mine's already on the calendar. I'm going to Maine in uh, August and I'm bringing Buddenbrooks with me because my blind spot right now is I've never read uh, Magic Mountain or or, uh, Buddenbrooks. Uh, My wife insists that Buddenbrooks actually is the superior of the two books and vastly more um, edifying and entertaining. I'm very excited to read it. But I think, Danny, you really hit upon something meaningful here, which is that it's you know enough to know that this thing is important and you you revere it even in your ignorance of its specifics. You revere it enough to know that it has to be done the right way at the right time and under the right circumstances or you won't have honored, you know, James Joyce's Ulysses. Um, and um, I think that that's what's so great about them. Like you, you, you're drawing upon the experience of having loved certain artifacts of culture and made them part of your own human nature almost and you suspect strongly suspect that 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 these things might um become that for you but you want to be ready and you want the moment to be right and i i always remember it's funny i for some bizarre reason i can't let go of this funny moment because it was such a quintessential moment in which one is condescended to you by a intellectual snob and I was a young graduate student, uh, probably my first or second semester, and I hadn't read one word of Wittgenstein. I had this kind of vague sense of what he was about, um, and I knew that I ought to. And this is as someone who essentially minored in ph- or double majored in philosophy and loved philosophy. And um, and I just, I knew it. And I, and I had exactly that blind spot feeling of there's, there's going to be a period of two to six weeks. You know, over a summer probably, and I'm just gonna. There isn't a ton of Wittgenstein to read. it mean, was not prolific by any means, and um, I'm just gonna bl- blow through it and do it. And I s- made the mistake of saying this to a philosophy graduate student, who just scoffed. I mean, it was like the most supercilious response I've ever gotten to anything I've ever said, and he wasn't even making fun of the fact that I hadn't read Wittgenstein. It was that I planned to do it. That that somehow, that somehow this was. Debased way of thinking about encountering a philosopher that you know that you had that you had put it into your to-do list or something. Oh, you're going to do Wittgenstein? You know, he's just dripping with this fucking hideous grad student superiority. Um, That's actually the form sh- of
1: condescension. It's a, it's the form of condescension of scorning you for not already knowing something, right? It's also scorning you for admitting that you don't already know it and wanting to learn something about it. So both things are unforgivably uncool.
0: Oh, it was so horrible. And then I showed that fucker because I, I did it. I mean, and it was exactly <laughs> as I had ridiculous. planned. Or, or hold grudges. <laughs> it was exactly as I had planned. I said, you know, there's sort of two major works here and a few, you know, minor works. And um, and there's also, I should say, a definitive biography by Ray Monk, which is fantastic. I mean, if you want a way in, that book is is really, uh, really one of the better uh, biographies uh, I've ever read um and i loved i loved it i mean i i cannot tell you he's become absolutely central to how i think of the world i mean i you know gratitude so there's so many that i have but one of the big ones really dana is just expand a little bit on your endorsement is is iranian i mean i never know how to say it without sounding like that grad student but iranian cinema um and so talk maybe a little bit about that
1: Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, I I guess a good starter text would be, for Kiyosami, would be Close Up, the movie that I, I endorsed and um and that I spent last night writing about after hearing that he had died. I mean, that's sort of one of his unimpeachable, you know, it would stand up to any scrutiny sort of masterpieces. But really, anywhere you start with him is great. And and the same is, I think, true of Iranian cinema. It's not like you've got to establish some chronological order of understanding. You know, you could watch some more Asghar Farhadi films. We've talked about him before on the show and sort of, you know, free associate from there, see who influenced him or, or who he talks about. But, you know, speaking of a, a national cinema that you feel like you, you owe some debt to and want to discover, I mean, there are so many of those for me. And, I mean, in a way, the Iranian cinema is, is one of the easier ones that jumps to mind because it's one that's made the jump to the West more successfully than some other great world cinemas. And when I think, for example, about, you know, the history of Chinese cinema or Egyptian cinema, which has this long tradition of, you know, maybe musicals almost along the lines of a Bollywood musical and also melodrama, and, you know, there's all kinds of cinematic traditions that I know nothing, as in not one name, not one film about, and those, again, feel like they have to be something that's set aside for some some period of sabbatical retreat, but also, and maybe lastly, I just wanted to push back on the idea that the timing always has to be perfect, and you always have to wait, because, of course, that can also become the excuse to defer something forever, and when what you're Discovering is not a huge chunk of a novel like Ulysses, but uh, something like, and a national cinema you're exploring, right? Where there are little two-hour tidbits you can take in at a time. I I, I would also argue for not that I do this very well myself, just jumping in wherever you can in the stream, you know, and grabbing some pieces mm-hmm. of blossoms the sky.
0: I think that that's great advice, and and um, uh, I'll give you a tip in return, which is with Ulysses, you know, the 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 thing that bogs everyone down is that it 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 is ins- it is genuinely inscrutable in parts i mean um not all of it by any means and much of it is l- lyrical and beautiful and mind-blowing i mean it really is it just is an incredible achievement but you you need you need guidance uh you can't just crack it open i mean maybe start by just cracking it open and the first 3 chapters are are pretty accessible but from there it starts to become you know recondite beyond recondite and um someone has recently put me onto a ulysses podcast um, which I haven't listened to yet, but but this is a person I really trust. And they say it's fantastic to listen to because basically he does. I think the format is basically a five minute explication of each sentence of Ulysses from beginning to end. And if and he each more than five, five
1: minutes
0: long, I think each podcast is very short and focuses on maybe one or maybe two sentences. I and mean, it's a novel very much.
1: Format. I love that idea.
0: And supposedly it's it's so illuminating of the text but also charming in and of itself he's quite a virgil for you know for this project and um and just a charming host and uh anyway i, I, I it, it don't give up and don't brave it alone and don't be ashamed to um enlist all kinds of study aids to get through it but but once you've kind of got it it's a it's just a remarkable human achievement that that guy made that book i mean it's just never. It never went away after I, I read it. Um, but, you know, that uh, podcast
1: anyway. may be my way in, because I think on, on Ulysses in particular, there was a professor in the English department at Berkeley who was legendary for his Ulysses class. And because I never took that class or managed to sit in on it, I sort of felt like I don't have the right guide anymore. My Virgil is, is gone. And, uh, and so maybe the podcast will be my Virgil.
0: So thanks. Fantastic. All right. Well, um, come to Facebook.com slash CultureFest. Tell us about your blind spots. This is something I would love to hear about and how you plan to fill them or did fill them. Um, and uh, thank you so much, Dana. That was fun. Yes, yeah, great. Thank you so much, Slat Plus listeners. We'll, we'll talk to you next week.